going to talk about the death of Josiah. We've been looking at him for several weeks. Quite a bit has been written about him. And like all of the kings, it goes through their life and it talks about his death. Now, one of the interesting things about the death of Josiah is he was one of the best kings. In fact, he's called one of the best kings, and I believe since David. Um, and yet, there's a little mystery around his death and why he went, and did he go against the Lord's will? So we'll take a look at that. But anyway, uh, we've come to the end of Josiah, and it just goes downhill from here. There aren't any other kings that are going to be a spark or a ray of hope. So uh, before we begin, let's just go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll do our review, and then we'll start going through this. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we need your Holy Spirit to be the teacher tonight. He is also the author of Scripture, and he is the one that enables us to put these things into practice. Thank you, Father. I ask you now that, that you would give us wisdom, uh, enlightenment, uh, practical wisdom, how we could put it in our lives. But, Father, also, too, we, we ask that uh, as we understand these things, we'll, um, Father, certainly be able to uh, be a testimony for you, even here at Grace Bible Church. And we'll just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, you know the review pretty much. Um, the big thing about Josiah's reign was that the book of the law was found. Now, he started the reforms before that, and so he had a heart for the Lord. But in 2 Kings 22, the book of the law was found and read, and he tore his clothes and repented and realized what he had to do. He also went and did a public reading of the word of God. He wasn't just, hey, this is good for me in my spiritual life. As a king of God's people, it was they have to have God's word too. And both the king and the people made a covenant to the Lord. So that, that's a revival. That's as, that's as much an explanation and a description of a revival as you'll get. And then Josiah started a second reform. Uh, one even in more detail, one with more aggression, getting rid of these idols that the, the kings, the past kings, had put up and established. Also, he read the, the law and he discovered that they were not doing the Passover, the very, very important Passover celebration, where it talked about the first Passover was the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt. But it was a memorial. But more than that, it's a beautiful picture of salvation as blood, the blood was put on the, the mantle and the doorposts of the building and the destroyer would pass by. We, when we trust Christ, so to speak, metaphorically, the blood is applied to the doorposts of our heart. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And the scripture says that there had not been a Passover like that since Samuel. I think it just about disappeared, but there were a few kings who had the Passover. But it tells us in 2 Chronicles 35, 18, there had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. We come now to 
the last acts of Josiah. And at this point, Kings is going to be very minuscule. But Second Chronicles will give us a little bit more detail. What's interesting is, is the book goes and it talks about Josiah's life and the acts of Josiah. And you're thinking, I'm at the end of the life of Josiah and it has one more event. And it's a big event because it's the event where Josiah dies in battle against King Necho, or rather Pharaoh Necho from Egypt. Well, let's pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23, and we want to begin with verse 24. So just after the Passover, just when you thought his reforms were done, or to let us know that he continued his reforms, it says, moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might conform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Well, the first thing that I want to mention is you, you may begin to wonder, well, wait, I thought he already took care of that. This is the second time, uh, or actually the third time, he's starting a reform. And it's like, well, how comes he's doing a reform again? He's reforming after a reform. But I think what this is, is it's in detail. We've seen Josiah go after the high places and tear down the idols. We've seen him go into uh, towards the temple and remove the idols and restore the temple. And I think now what we're seeing is the, the personal gods that people had. So all of this was being done. They all made a covenant to the Lord. But it appears as though uh, th these idols that he's talking about are on a personal level. And that was something that Israel always did struggle with. Um, these other nations had these idols, not just that they would worship on a high place, but they'd have these little, little keychains, rabbit's foot, uh, idols that they would carry with them. And, and, and one would take care of one catastrophe. One would protect from something else. And it's so sad that Israel and Judah got caught up in this. So he begins this. But now he's also taking after the mediums and the spiritists. So let's just talk about that for a moment. This is the occult, if you will. And it seems as if the bigger things have been taken away, but now he's going after the smaller and the personal. And the first one that is removed is the mediums. Now, it's hard to know exactly... Uh, what he means by these, I think in a general way, we know exactly what it means, but there seems to be a close uh, description of a medium and a spiritist. But if you go back to the Hebrew word, it's those who attempt to contact the dead, necromancers. They are those who are trying to contact the dead. So are the spiritists in a way too. So that's, that's the hard part. What, what does one do as opposed to another? But these, these mediums um, go about trying to contact the dead, of course, to either make a correspondence with the living 
or even some type of future warning. But we see in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, it's against the law. So this is why Josiah is doing it. If it's in the law, he's doing it. It says, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. So it has both of those together. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And again, you question why in the world are they seeking knowledge from these occultic practices? Why not from the Lord? They serve the Lord. And God has provided many prophets in the book of Kings. Why aren't they going to the Lord? Well, also, too, I'd like you to turn to this one, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. Because in our study tonight, I came across this verse, and it's kind of interesting. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, Isaiah is talking about these mediums and these spiritists. And you're thinking of a seance, or you're thinking of the speaking of the dead, or you're thinking of fortune tellers. And this is what Isaiah says. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Now that phrase there, many have thought that that means ventriloquism. And I suppose that it does. You know, there still is, uh, right now, there is, um, I think he's a Christian magician. And he has a, a, a million dollar challenge to anyone who can show him any validity in fortune tellers or in mediums and in spiritists. And, and, it's, and this has been going on for years and the million dollars is still in his bank. And he debunks them. It's, it's uh, all forgery. It's a scam. And here's the idea of maybe it's spiritism. Now, some have said, well, maybe it's uh, ventriloquism from demons. But I think what we're really finding out is it's, it's not necessarily from demons, but from people pulling pranks because people are so vulnerable and naive without the word. Well, the next one is the spiritists. And, and this one has the word in it, yada, which means to know. So there seems to be more of a fortune-telling idea here. The other is just contacting the dead. This one seems to be um, fortune tellers. They receive esoteric knowledge. Now, what does that mean? It means it's not good. What, what is amazing is that even Christians can get involved in this, and, and it, you get knowledge mystically rather than from the Word of God. You get it in an esoteric way, outside of the normal way of getting knowledge. And we've talked about here before, we've talked about uh, this contemplative prayer movement. We've talked about this holy silence where you, you, you don't meditate on scripture. In fact, that's one of the things you make sure you don't do. You don't want to think. And we have people preaching that. People preaching that in supposed evangelical churches. Um, not only that, but we have a lot of people promoting to hear the voice of the Lord. The Lord spoke to me. Beloved, I'm not saying he never spoke to anyone, especially the, the prophets and the apostles. But that is not how he speaks to us today. 
It is through the word of God. And somebody says, if you want to hear the, if you want to hear the audible word of God, read the Bible aloud. And that, and, and there's a, there's a lot of wisdom in that because how do you know this is the Lord? How do you know? Now, you know it's the Lord when you read it because this is the word of God. But how do you know this impression that I just received is from the Lord? Well, I could go into that a lot, but nevertheless, the law prohibited it and said it needed to be removed. And Josiah is doing it. Good for you, Josiah. There's a, a number of things that are written um, as for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I also will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among the people. This is how serious this was to God, that you're trying to get this mystical knowledge. And, and God's up there going, I can't believe this. I can't believe that they're leaving the God who delivered them, the God who reveals um, his truth to them for this stuff. Now, I do want to go back to Leviticus 19, or actually uh, uh, Isaiah 8. I want to just finish that one. It says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? What a question. I mean, even if you're going to worship a false God, then let that be the God that you believe is going to reveal the truth. Well, of course, that's false. But we who serve the true God, the people of Israel, shouldn't they consult their own God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Wow. Don't you just love the wisdom of the word of God, the, the common sense that brings it all back? Why would you contact the dead to find out about the living when the dead are dead. And that's what we find out from the scriptures. We find out that when a person dies, they either go to heaven or they go to hell. And they do not come back and give us information and we don't see them. That, that none of that happens. None of that is biblical. Well, this is all wrapped up in the occult. Now, where did I get the idea of a personal idols in religion? Well, that's this next word. And the teraphim or the teraphim. If, if you, what this means is the household idols. So the house, household idols would be these idols that give you protection. You carry them in your purse. I, I, I would say it's almost like a rabbit's foot, except I don't know too many people who actually believe in a rabbit's foot. Um, certainly the rabbit doesn't believe in the rabbit's foot. Um, it's just a shame that you have all these three-legged rabbits running around. That's what I don't appreciate. But, the, but, but this was serious. This was something that they worshipped. This was their God. Well, what does the Lord think of both divination, going through spirits and necromancers and fortune tellers? What does the Lord think of that? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 15, 23 says this, and by the way, it also is equating rebellion. What does the Lord think of rebellion? It says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. No, don't you think you're going a little overboard there? Absolutely not. 
Divination is seeking and giving yourself to these other gods. Rebellion is turning away from the true God to give yourself to other gods or to become your own God. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, someone asked, I think it was last week, why is idolatry so bad? Well, here's another reason why. Besides the fact that God is a jealous God, he loves his people. He wants the love back from his people in the obedience. It says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Well, I have a couple of quotes here just to talk about this uh, personal idols. And one commentary writes, as Josiah had meticulously fulfilled the requirements of the law relative to Israel's ceremonial worship with his many reforms, his repair of the temple and his reinstitution of the Passover, so had he put away the evils of false personal religion, false personal religion. This included both those who dealt in spiritism and all sorts of objects of detestable idolatry. Here's another one from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Josiah's purge weeded out even the informal practitioners, mediums and spiritists of rites God has condemned. Household gods were worshipped as sources of prosperity and as oracles, meaning I'm going to hear the future. Uh, I'm going to know what, what's the future. Kind of like that, um, uh, what is it that, you ever see that ball? It's, it's the eight ball and you shake it and it, it has the same answers over and over, but you ask it questions and it's supposed to tell you that. Well, they believed in that. And they believed that these little, little idols did it. They were destroyed as well as all other idols through Judah and Jerusalem. So Josiah begins with the big, then he continues on with the lesser, and then finally the lesser. But each of them are equal in degree and rebellion. And then in verse 25, we have sort of like an epitaph of Josiah. We seem to be coming to the end. Doesn't seem as if there's anything else we're going to learn about, but we will. It says, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Now, I think we know enough of the book of Kings to know that he's the author is not including David. David is the creme de la creme. Everyone is compared to David. I think what he's talking about here is the kings after David and the kings of the divided kingdom. There weren't any in the north and there weren't any in the south that compared to Josiah. So I'm, I'm really glad that we spent as much time in it because there was so much written about it in the scriptures. So the writer gives the highest praise uh, to Josiah. Uh, and, and notice, too, notice the, this will preach, by the way, notice all of the, the uh, actions. First of all, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord. That's the first thing we do. In fact, it says in the New Testament, 
They turn to the Lord away from idols. You don't turn away from idols and have a reform and then turn to the Lord. You turn to the Lord who saves you and empowers you to turn away from everything else. They turned, he turned to the Lord with his heart and then with his soul. That's his strength and his might. So his whole being, and that's how we ought to be. We ought to, our whole being ought to seek the Lord. And then it says, according to all the law of Moses. Don't think we're seeking the Lord with all our heart, soul, and might, but not going after his word, not following his word. You know, it's almost as if there's a sect of Christianity that it's all about emotion. It's all about what we do, but it's not about the word. And you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see a revival where we do get emotional about the word of God. I mean, that's what we should do. In fact, it tells us in Isaiah that we should tremble at the word of God. This is Josiah. And one writes, in summary, it could be said of Josiah that none of the kings of Israel and Judah was his equal in zeal for the law. As Hezekiah had been unequaled in faith among the kings, so Josiah knew no rival in uncompromising adherence to the law of Moses. And of course, this is what pleased the Lord. Well, with all of this, as good as he did, maybe there's hope for Judah. No, there isn't. Look at verse 26. And we've seen this. We've seen this throughout Josiah's life. Uh, and we even had that revelation from God, from Huldah, the prophetess. It says, however, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger burned against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. So we know the Lord is long-suffering, unbelievable. The, the history of Israel, everybody complains about the Lord's long-suffering. If that had been me, I'd have been done with them a long time, and we see that. But there does come a point when the Lord says, that's enough. We talked about in Jeremiah where it says, Jeremiah, don't even pray because I'm not going to listen. And this is where we're at. And by the way, Jeremiah his ministry is beginning right about this time. He was the prophet during Josiah and then the rest of the kings until the captivity of the southern kingdom. So th this is where we're at. And, and so in the book of Jeremiah, we were so shocked when we came to that. But if you've gone through the book of First and Second Kings, you're not shocked at all. God had already said it. You're done. And, and notice once again, he talked about Manasseh. So they were all bad, and they were all terrible. But Manasseh pushed the envelope, and it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so he is going to be the one who is blamed for it. Now, we, you do remember that Manasseh did repent and did some reforms. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And notice, it says, This has brought about the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned. Now, we all know what anger is. There is a righteous anger, anger towards sin. 
it's hard for us to have that. It's hard for us to, to work that out. But the Lord has it perfectly. And it's against sin. And there comes a time when he must punish sin. We saw that with the flood. When we, we see that now with Israel. And we're going to ultimately see it with Christ who died on the cross for our sins. We're talking about that uh, birth of Christ on Sunday. And then we're going to see that he came so that he would die. Well, he not only died, but he took the fierce wrath of God for you and me for all of our sins. That's what he did so that there's no condemnation upon us. Well, Manasseh, we've looked at these several scriptures. He's mentioned over and over as the culprit. Uh, he really did take it to another level, uh, another level of idolatry, removing some of the, the uh, altars out of the temple area, the altar to the Lord, moving it out, bringing in these altars to these false gods. It's a wonder, it's a wonder that we're in the 23rd chapter of the book of Kings, 2 Kings. I mean, talk about the Lord's long-suffering. It's still going on. Well, he explains a little bit. The Lord said, and this is sad, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple which I said, my name shall be there. So on so many levels, this is so sad. So you, you had uh, the northern kingdom that sinned, and they're already taken into captivity. The southern kingdom, where the temple is, where the name of the Lord is in the presence of the Lord, Judah was not faithful, and they're going to be removed as well from this place. Now, again, we know that after the captivity, they will be Israel will be released and can go back to Jerusalem. They can rebuild the temple. Verse 28, as we're looking at the book of Kings, says, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. Now again, these we believe are documents, court documents, civil documents, even though in this case we have information about what's about to happen in chronicles. But that's we've already proved that that's not the case in every time this phrase is used. All right, so we're switching really from the Acts, the last Acts of Josiah, how faithful he was. And now we're going to come to the events of his death. Let's go drop down to verse 29. And, and 2 Kings chapter 23 is only going to talk about verse 29 and verse 30. So we're going to be turning to 2 Chronicles shortly. But all of a sudden is introduced Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went to meet him, and when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. 
This is how he is going to die. Now, there's a little bit more than this. In fact, 2 Chronicles gives us a little bit more detail before Josiah dies. So I'd like you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 35. And we want to look at verse 20. Now, it kind of takes us back. Um, a little bit in time, whereas Kings just gives it to us flat. Verse 20, 2 Chronicles 35. After all this, when Josiah had sent, uh, excuse me, set the temple in order, so he did all of these things, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. Now, let's just kind of work our way through this. First of all, who is Necho? Well, he is the pharaoh of Egypt at this time, and he is in alliance with the king of Assyria. Now, the king of Assyria was the one who came down and invaded the northern Israel and took them into captivity. Egypt, the king of Egypt, was in alliance with him. What's happening at this time between Assyria and Babylon is this jockey for power and position. Assyria is weakening. Babylon is increasing in power. And there's players in the middle, and Necho was one of them. So it says, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates. In other words, they were going to uh, battle and try to conquer Carchemish, and it would be a strategic place when the Babylonians come against them. So let me uh, read a couple of things here. Necho became pharaoh during the last days of the Assyrian Empire, when it was precariously clinging to life in North Syria. As a former Assyrian vassal, one who paid tribute to the Assyrian king, with expansionist ideas and concern to limit Babylonia, Chaldea, as a possible successor to Assyrian dominance, Egypt sent a major sea and land expedition to North Syria in 609 BC to aid Assyria against the Babylonian forces. In doing so, Necho encountered King Josiah of Judah at Megiddo. Well, before we start talking about Josiah, I just want to say there, there really are, that we know of, at least two major battles at Carchemish. This is the first one, and the second one is the major one. Four years later, what's going to happen after this is the Egyptian king will himself be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar under the walls of the city in battle which decided the fate of Western Asia. So the king, Nico, is going to go up there in battle. He's actually going to occupy Carchemish. It's, it's a perfect location. It's a border place. He has it. Well, Babylon is getting stronger, and in four years, they're coming down, and they're going to defeat King Nico. Now, um, here's some pictures here. Necho uh, II, king of Egypt. His time was from 610 to 595. 
And of course, notice it mentions 2 Chronicles, but it also mentions um, Jeremiah 46.2. Now, we won't read that, but Jeremiah 46.2 mentions Nico and Carchemish, and that's the second battle, and that's the big one. This isn't, this isn't good either. This is the one that's associated with Josiah's death. So here's a picture of him. And I just noticed a moment ago that he's on his knees. Maybe that's how he got his name, Nico. Um, two knees. He's Nico II. I'm sorry. I couldn't help. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, you really wonder how lifelike these things look. He doesn't look like a very powerful dictator or king or pharaoh. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, we've, we've seen artists give rendition of all kinds of things and apply it to the Bible. All right, and then Egypt. Let's take a look at Egypt. Well, here we have Egypt in comparison to Jerusalem. So we could see this area. So that's where uh, it's really not that far. So Egypt could very easily attack Jerusalem. Now, perhaps Josiah was a little afraid of that attack, except he goes right past Jerusalem all the way up to Carchemish by the Euphrates River because that's going to be the stronghold. That's going to be the, the great border place. So, um, you know, he goes right past. He's not after Josiah, but he goes right up to Carchemish there on the Euphrates. So we have to figure out now, well, why does Josiah go against him? Well, look at verse 21. But Nico sent messengers to him saying, what have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And get this, and God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me so that he will not destroy you. Well, this is uh, very, very interesting at this point here. Uh, he actually gives two arguments. One's a logical argument, which we can understand, and the other one's a spiritual argument that we're scratching our heads to understand. Well, first of all, what is the logical warning here? He's saying, look, I'm not coming against you. I don't have anything against you. Why would you come up to start war with us? Why would you want to make war with us? And why should Josiah be concerned about that? Now, we have some theories, and, and we'll, we'll talk about some theories, but that kind of made sense. And then he says this. He says, and God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me so that he will not destroy you. Now he's talking about a spiritual warning. But he is a pagan king. What is he doing with revelation from Yahweh? Why is he using words like, I have been ordered by God, and if you interfere, you will be destroyed? Why, why is he doing that? Well, it is a little confusing because we, we, we received no more record of anything else. We don't know if 
He's just a pathological liar. We don't know if a prophet from Israel, or rather Judah, had somehow gotten a prophecy and was beginning to tell this and it got to his ears. We really don't know. Uh, Nico would have been uh, speaking about Josiah's God, but there's no record of whether Nico received revelation from God somehow or if he was lying to Josiah. Or was he assuming, but very strongly assuming? You know how some people are there. It's very boastful. Uh, you know, if, if something could happen, all of a sudden they're saying it's going to happen and they're usually going to take the credit. Maybe he was like that. We really don't know. But I want to say this before we go any further. This isn't the first time we see somehow or other God using pagans who know what's going on with Yahweh and Israel and Judah. In the book of Jeremiah, if you remember, after they were taken into captivity, the commander comes up to Jeremiah as if Jeremiah needed to hear it. But this is what the commander, a pagan commander, it says, now the captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God promised this calamity against this place. And the Lord has brought it on and done just as he promised. Because you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice. Therefore, this thing has happened to you. And we have no idea exactly how he knew that. You know, maybe these were um, outspoken Israelites and Jewish people. They were witnessing, perhaps, and it got to the ears of Babylon. That's who this was from. But we, we've seen this in the past, and it is a mystery. Um, nevertheless, this is what's said. But now, Josiah's reaction is just as puzzling. I mean, this should have at least made him stop and think. But it does not. Look at verse 22. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. Well, I've got to deal with that one. Nor did he listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. So even the author is giving some credence that somehow or other, he received revelation and he was giving it to Josiah. I, I can't quite explain that. I, I don't know how, but we see this here. And then I have read some commentaries and the commentary said, yeah, this was from God. And so we should have listened. But the question could be, how could, he, could Josiah have known? What did Josiah do when Josiah wanted to inquire of the Lord? He wouldn't go to Pharaoh Nico, he would go to a prophet. Well, we don't understand how, this, how or why this was said, but let's just look at Josiah for just a moment because he wouldn't turn, turn away, and it's going to be his demise. First of all, maybe he didn't trust the Assyrians or the alliances. Yeah, I think so. You know, the whole northern kingdom is gone because the Assyrians came down and took them into captivity. So he doesn't really particularly care for the Assyrians or anyone who's in alliance with the Assyrians like Nico. So he's not trusting that. Second of all, 
why wouldn't he think if they already attacked the northern kingdom, what's going to keep them from attacking the southern kingdom? And that's a good question. That's also a logical response. Uh, the Assyrian king and Nico could join forces and attack Judah. So he's trying to prevent that if that's the case. The other thing is, is he's having trouble believing Nico. And I can, I, I can understand that. Um, Josiah had difficulty believing that Nico had heard from God somehow because he's a pagan king. So there is mystery in it, and perhaps that's exactly why we have it presented the way that we do. It's a mystery to us because it was a mystery to Josiah. But Josiah chose to go against these two arguments and go to do battle. Well, notice, if you will, it says he's going to disguise himself. Well, if you have gone through the book of Kings with us, you know that that was attempted once before. Just love Ahab. You know, Ahab talks Jeho Jehoshaphat into coming on up, and he said, let's go to battle. I'll disguise myself, and you dress up like King Ahab. That plan will work. Well, it almost didn't for Jehoshaphat. They were going to kill him until he said, I'm not Ahab. And it didn't work for Ahab because a random arrow from an archer went through the joint of the armor and killed King Ahab. Well, now, here he's going to disguise himself. So, And maybe this was part of what would happen back in those days. They didn't want the king to be killed. Um, maybe they thought if the enemy sees the king, that's who we're gunning for. Let everybody else go get the king. But anyway, he disguises himself, and what we're going to find out is that he's going to be shot from an archer in Megiddo. So he's not even going to go, not even going to make it up to Carchemish. Really what he's going to do is intercept, let's see, what he's going to do is intercept King Nico before he gets up to Carchemish. So you see where it says at the bottom, Gilead and Carmel. Well, just south of that is the Jezreel Valley. That's the valley that there's been many battles in history, uh, in the Bible, and that's the one where Christ is coming back in Armageddon and that he's going to defeat his enemies and Israel's enemies. So this is a very famous place. But this is where this takes place and this is where Josiah is going to die. Verse 23, it says, The archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away for I am badly wounded. So he shot by these archers. Now, it, 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 again, it, it's a little hard to know just exactly what's going on here. Uh, there was one place where, it's, where it said that King Nico saw him, but that's in italics. So it's assumed that that's in the context. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if King Nico said, if you see him, take him out. 
or if the archers didn't know because he was disguised. I, I don't know which is the case, but he gets fatally wounded. He's there in Megiddo, and he says, Take me away to Jerusalem, for I am badly wounded. And of course, this is this is going to bring about his death. And we're, we're going to uh, look at a few verses, two verses to look at this. In 2 Kings 23.30, you don't have to turn there. This is what it says. And there's just two verses that's covered this whole thing in Kings. His servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. But Second Chronicles is not quite done. So Second Chronicles 35 verse 24 says very similar, but he's still alive by the time he gets to Jerusalem. It says, so his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in the second chariot, which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died and was buried in the tombs of his father. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And so we, we see really this sad ending, and it, it makes you scratch your head and think, why? Why did Josiah do it? Of course, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? And it very well could have been his time was up. Very well could have been God is saying, all right, let's get this thing done. Let's bring in these other kings. Let's, let's develop Babylon and let's push down Assyria. So he's the one who's orchestrating all of that. And so maybe that was the case. We don't know. Or maybe there was something where Josiah should have thought just a little bit more, should have had just a little cooler head, and maybe should have examined this, whether this was God's will or not. He could have inquired of the Lord. And as far as we know, he did not. Now, notice the the. Real epitaph, it says, all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. One of the things that we read in Proverbs is that a good king will be mourned and missed, but an evil king, everyone is celebrating. And that's what we see in the book of Kings. We see these evil kings, and some of them don't even get buried with the other kings because they're so evil. But the good kings who did good, did good and right in the sight of the Lord, did good for the people. This is what happens. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And I believe that that mourning went on for, for decades. Um, he, this is the kind of influence that he had. Look at verse 25. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah. And all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are written in the lamentations. Well, if you look in lamentations or in Jeremiah, you don't see this written. So again, this very 
well could have been a different book, not the book of Lamentations that Jeremiah writes. I have two commentaries, or two quotes from one commentary, MacArthur. He says, there's no record of Jeremiah's elegy. The people continue to mourn the loss of Josiah up to the writing of the Chronicles in 450, 430 BC. Wow, almost 200 years, nearly 200 years after that event. In fact, the location of the battle, the town of Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo was part of a proverb lamenting Josiah's death even in Zechariah's day. So in Zechariah 12, it mentions something about the mourning of Josiah. Well, we finish it up there in verse 30 of 2 Kings 23.30, where it says <clears throat> that uh, he was replaced um, by his son. He died, and his son Jehoahaz uh, took over. And it's going to be interesting because Nico is going to stay in the picture and uh, for a little bit. And this is kind of the beginning of the end. And so we'll pick that up uh, next time we return. But what can we glean from these episodes here in Josiah's life? You know, first of all, I, I don't know whether... I don't know whether it's looked at as Josiah made a mistake. He did so much good, but here in the end, he made a final mistake. I don't know that that's the case. Um, if indeed, if somehow it came through uh, not obeying the Lord, then, then I can understand it. But from his point of view, you know, I could see why he did what he did. And it may have been just his, his time. I mean, you have to die some way. And perhaps this was the, the way. But uh, again, what I think it does for us is it, it shows us, okay, no one is perfect, but we can move towards perfection. We can move towards living for the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation is obtained the moment we trust in Christ and we don't do any works. But what about as a believer? I believe it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us. I believe it's the, the, the new nature that we have. But somewhere in there, we have to plug in with our will. And Josiah is a beautiful example of someone who loved the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his might. And he was also someone who loved the word, the law of Moses. So I think that's a big thing that we would pray about for ourselves. Lord, you know, and I, I would say, and I love this church and I love everybody in it. If you ask me what kind of believers do we have here, I'd say mature believers. Do I think they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and strength? Yes. And, and I, I think it's a wonderful church, but I think myself especially, we can always dig deeper. We can always become more serious. We can always try to move further. We can always try to, if there's a besetting sin, to have victory over the sin. If there's something we're, we're convicted about in the word of God, approach it like Josiah. doesn't matter whether it's big or small. We're going after it. We're going after it till there's victory, till, till we see the image of Christ in us. So I think that's the big takeaway here. The big takeaway is Josiah and how we ought to be like him. 
I think the next takeaway from this is the idea of the Lord's sovereignty. Um, did you ever see someone set up those dominoes in like a big room? And, you know, it, it's all kinds of circles and things like this. And then they just hit one and all of these dominoes and domino effect. Well, sometimes I've seen where you start with one, but then all of a sudden there's four or five different rows. So one will strike five. And now five things with all of these dominoes are happening to bring this about. I, I don't think God's a God of dominoes. I just think God is a God of sovereignty and he's a God of omniscience. It's not hard for God to think of a few things at once. It's not even hard for God to think of all things at once. And when we talk about God's omniscience of what he knows, it's called his present knowledge. It's the present knowledge. The past is as present to him as the present. The future is as present to him as the present. It's all before him. And we're seeing this all work together. In the book of Jeremiah, it's very helpful because he talks about Babylon uh, becoming the power, Assyria being squelched. The book of Daniel is really beautiful because it talks about these kingdoms. It talks about Babylon kingdom and then the next kingdom after and the next kingdom after. So meticulously that, that the unbelievers say Daniel is, was not from the prophet before these things happened. This Daniel was someone who looked back in history and nailed it and just said as he saw it happen. No, this is how sovereign God is. And God is working this all out. Now, one of the reasons why he's working this out is to bring discipline upon his own people. We saw that with Assyria and the northern kingdom, and now we're seeing it with Babylon being strengthened, and they are going to be the ones who take Judah into captivity. This is all in God's sovereignty. But if you're wondering, well, that just doesn't sound fair because these kingdoms are evil. Yes, they are. And you go through the book of Jeremiah. I was just looking at the outline of Jeremiah this afternoon. And it was all of a sudden the judgment on Assyria, the judgment on Babylon, the judgment on this nation that was not kind to Israel, the judgment of the, he will judge all of these. He's sovereign. He, he leaves no stone unturned. And as we think of this still with the kings, it's showing us that there's no human king, no human, human king that will be able to sit on the throne of David forever. But the God-man king, the one who's born the theanthropic person, he is going to be the one who is going to sit on the throne of David forever. So those are our takeaways. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the life of Josiah. Father, I would only pray for myself and those gathered here this evening and 
our church, uh, Lord, that we would have the same kind of testimony that Josiah had, one that loved you, Lord, with our heart, soul, and might, one that loved your word, one that puts it into practice. Father, we, we also ask at this time, too, that we would be, uh, Father, sharing what we know, knowing your sovereignty, knowing what your plan is. You have revealed, if whether you gave something to Nico or not, you have given us the revelation of the future in the book of Revelation. May we be sharing that, and may we have opportunity to share the gospel, how sinners like us can be saved. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.